Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Citizen Reporter. Uh, Mark Fonseca Rendeiro with you. And as always on this program, one of my great joys is bringing both old friends, and in this case, new friends, getting to know uh, people, but also getting to know what they're passionate about, what they're busy with. And today, uh, the conversation is with my new friend, Pudadito Chatopatai. And Pudadito, maybe we can start with your name, actually, uh, making sure everyone hears it and tell us about it. Thank you, uh, Mark. I'm Budhadito Chattopadhyay. Budhadito Chattopadhyay. Uh, Budhadito means when Bud, which is Mercury, the planet, and Aditto, which is sun. It is Sanskrit words. That Mercury and sun were concurrent with earth, like in a straight line. And it was, uh, my relatives told me that I was born at that moment when that concurrent concurrence happened. So that's why my name carries those two names, you know, planet Mercury and, uh, and sun, Buddhaditta. Surname is Chattopadhyay, which is a, also a combination of two other uh, components, hmm. Chotto and Upadhyay. Chotto is the name of the village, and Upadhyay is the priest. So Chattopadhyay is surname to people who are, by generations, teachers and priests, many generations. Um, so my father was a teacher, my grandfather was a teacher too. So Chattopadhyay is the priest or teacher from the village of Chotto. I don't know uh, <laughs> where the village is located, Chotto, I never heard, but maybe it's, it's a mythological village somewhere mm. in India. Yeah. And and so since you mentioned that, uh, the beauty of it uh, is not lost on me, but also I wonder as a child, was there expectation that you would teach or, or uh, be a priest in some form? Um, uh, not at all. I, I didn't feel the pressure to be a uh, to be a teacher or as a, as a priest. My father was not a priest. He was a rebel, and he left the family. And uh, we are Brahmin, so we need to wear a piece of cloth on our body. And what he did, he used that piece of cloth to hang a mosquito net. So that was a rebellion yeah. uh, in in his hostel or something like that. So this rebellion was also in kind of transferred to me and uh, I didn't take the, um, in my boyhood, mm. usually you are baptized as a Brahmin. I didn't take that. So I was not baptized. I refused to have the baptization process. Mm. You, you have uh, both in your career, uh, I would say as an academic, but also as a performer, as a musician, as a, I think, a, a, an admirer and a student of sound, how did your, what is the earliest memory, let's say, what is the earliest memory that you have that sound meant something special to you? The earliest memory, uh, I had many different, like, fading or flashy uh emergent memories. Uh, one of them would be the early morning chorus, that what is called dawn chorus of birds in the like 4.30, just before the sun is appearing. So that dawn chorus was something I remember very well. Then smaller creatures like insects, there were uh, in the monsoon, a lot of insects, there crying together like a symphony mm. of insects. This is another memory. And then another memory, uh, very strong one, is the working women. We used to live in the countryside. And the working women who used to come from the factory, the tribal women, indigenous people, uh, they used to work in the factory in the daytime. In the late afternoon, around dusk, they used to come back to their house after work and they used to sing. So all through their pathway, they were singing um, chorus, walking and singing. That, those songs are still in my memory, kind of strong. Wow. I, I have a, a small recollection, uh, thinking about people working and the sound of it. Um, 
I went in Karnataka some years ago to Kudramukh National Park. And on the way, you know, you stop off to have a, a snack or a drink wherever you can before you go into the park. And it happened that a friend said, oh, if we stop in this area, it's a tea growing area. And I have only seen tea growing areas in, in parts of uh, the Portuguese islands of the Azores. And, and whenever I've been there, I, I don't see anyone working. Honestly, I must miss that day. I just see fields of tea. But on this day in, in uh, Karnataka, there were women uh, wearing almost, I have a memory of sort of outfits for work and having these big scissors with bags attached to them. This, this chopping, it was very steady. I can almost hear it. Yeah, I, I can, um, my, my mother's side, they had, they were, for a couple of generations, they were planters, like uh, tea garden owners. And my mother's father had a tea estate in Assam, actually Tripura. Tripura is just below Assam, northeast of India. And I visited in my boyhood, and just a couple of years ago, I visited for a long time, mm. a tea plantation. And there I heard this particular sound that you mentioned. Mm. The collective sound of cutting that the three leaves and one uh, in the center, uh, they cut from the uh, plant, tea plant itself. Yeah. Your, your life, uh, as I've read, because the internet allows, <laughs> um, you've moved a lot, uh, it seems to me, at least in your adult life. Um, universities, cities, uh, different parts of the, certainly of Europe, I've noticed. Um, tell me about your path, especially as you pursued this interest and, and can I call it a, a passion for sound? Europe was always present when I grew up. At the age of eight, I heard B minor mass by Johann Sebastian Bach on the radio uh, in BBC World Service. And uh, that blew my mind. Ever since I started listening to classical music and also through literature and later cinema, like European cinema, particularly Bergman, um, Antonioni, at the early age, I, I was just uh, listening and seeing the surfaces of the films. The p narratives were kind of touching me. But when I uh, saw them and heard them again in adult life, I could unpack the narratives and the strategies, the craftsmanship and the, um, the authorship those films were um, projected uh, were projecting and also I was into classical music listening for many years uh, mostly uh, contemporary classical and later uh, late romantic uh, Gustav Mahler Arnold Schoenberg Alvan Barg, Webern so early um, modern period so uh, through these listening viewing and uh, reading literature from um, European novels and poetry, I was already growing up within a kind of European sensibility. But the physical interaction with Europe happened in 2006 when I came to Berlin for the first time with an invitation from the Berlin uh, International Film Festival. They had a Berlinale campus where they used to invite film students from around the world. And I was invited in 2006 from um, our film school. I was then in second year film school student. So I came and uh, that was the gateway for me to Europe. It was an immensely pleasurable trip for two and a half months. I came to Berlinale and then I stayed back visiting some like friends. I, I gathered some friends. I was connecting with some institutions who were into new media and, and sound art. Very few were there in 2006. Sound art was not yet 
uh, recognized as a form uh, known as such. Green Recorder was one organization I contacted beforehand and then visited them when I was in Berlin. It was in Frankfurt. So those were the early days when sound art was emerging. And I wanted to uh, connect those organizations and artists to find my future peers, like the association I built. So that was a plan I had to uh, find people who are working in my field. I was not um, not also much aware about what is going on, but people working with sound was something I wanted to explore at that time. You've also made your own sound along the way um, as a performer, as a musician. I mean, tell me a little bit about how that happened, uh, uh, you as a musician. Uh, without knowing what is sound art, what is field recording, what is soundscape composition, I was already working uh, intuitively since I was in the film school. Hmm. So in 2005, 2004, I was uh, experimenting with sound, joining tapes. Um, when I was working with Nagara, for example, also when digital technology was um, incorporated in the film school curriculum, I had digital recorders, small flash recorders and later hard disk recorders. So I was experimenting with them, recording environmental sound, working with them like a from a music concrete perspective. But I didn't know the music concrete existed. Uh, nobody um, in our film school, at least, I was not taught sound art. I was um, learning about music recording, film sound design, but I was not very much interested in working for cinema as such. I was interested in autonomously working with sound mm. with my own sensibility intact. So I was working alone in my home, uh, in my film school apartment, uh, hostel, and also taking the recording gear outside of the film school campus, working on my own. So through these different exercises, I developed two pieces cutting and pasting, joining together like a collage. So those two pieces were my first work without knowing what they are, what kind of uh, artistic trajectory they come from or what are the inheritance or what what is the uh, like genre of work that I'm contributing to. I didn't know. I was working completely from an intuitive, untrained, um, personal uh, exploration of sound. But then when I started to explore what people are doing with sound internationally, then I came across these uh, organizations and artist collectives, uh, as I mentioned, Green Recorder in Frankfurt and the festival uh, Transmediale in Berlin. Mm -hmm. So when I got this invitation from Berlin, my aim was to connect with those people and introduce myself that I am working like this. Is it something you would like to listen to or like to make connections to understand what is the field and how is it and wh what am I doing actually? So from this particular urge, uh, I came to Berlin and then I found some new friends and those my association with Green Recorder, for example, is still uh, very alive. I just released the Nomadic Listener, which I presented in the talk you attended, mm. uh, they, that came out with Green Recorder, uh, my level, and from 2006 to 2020. It's a long association I have with them. So along the way, along the path, I have come across so many interesting artists, collectives, organizations, institutions. Um, so 2007, when I moved to Europe, 2006 was when um, I was in third year and then 2007 I graduated. And by that time I was already, I made 
made up my mind that I need to come to Europe to study further. I don't want to work in the film industry. So then I started applying for master's degree and I got one scholarship. Actually, I got three scholarships, not full. The one that was full scholarship, I accepted that. European Union scholarship. And, and two others were one in goldsmiths, audiovisual practice. Mm-hmm. And another was Utrecht University, audiovisual design. There was a master's program there. But I didn't get the full funding, so I couldn't afford those two places. So I moved to Denmark and to study acoustic communication. And uh, in 2007, just seven days after I graduated from film school in India. So I didn't have any time even to uh, work in the film industry. Hmm. Since 2007, I'm almost continuously in Europe. Contemporary world is marred by intensified conflicts between nations and within various sects and segments of people. The future human societies need to learn how to resolve conflict of interests, values and beliefs. Acceptance and tolerance are essential for the humanity to navigate the challenging times ahead, which will be marked by scarcity of natural resources and an unprecedented human-made decay in the environments, leading to possible anthropocenic calamities. Uh, that's a clip from uh, Hyper Listening uh, from your own uh, YouTube. Uh, I wanted to bring in Hyper Listening. Uh, you did a series of workshops. You do a series of workshops uh, on self attunement, and I would yes. like to definitely myself learn. But I can imagine there are people listening also. Uh, I would like to sort of understand that. Hyper Listening comes from a question. Uh, about modes of listening. There are different modes of listening and they are theorized Mm. in sound studies. One is causal listening, semantic listening, and uh, like reduced listening, deep listening, expanded listening. So I wanted to uh, question the different modes of listening and maybe I can contribute with a particular approach in listening, which is more meditative and uh, intersubjective. In causal listening, you always look for a source that is causing sound that you he- you are hearing. Like I, uh, if I clap, then the clap is a source of the sounding. Now, uh, in reduced listening, you don't look for the source itself, but you just uh, attend to the texture and tonality of the sound. So you remove the source, you just concentrate on the sound itself. For musical performances or composition, reduced listening is a strong, uh, one of the primary methodologies. So departing from these different modes of listening, I wanted to question whether it's possible to uh, listen not only departing from the object, but also departing from the sound itself, but focusing on what does, uh, what does it do to the mind? What does it do to the well-being? What does it do to the consciousness? So I was thinking about the, not the sound uh, as such, but the listener's contextual position. Hmm. So if I am, practicing hyper-listening, then I am practicing and self-attunement to my surrounding. And I'm also thinking about the effect, the ramification of listening in my own contextual position. Like, for example, a cup I put in the table, from partial listening, it's just a cup put on a table. Then the story is finished. <laughs> if you take a reduced listening approach, you just think about the, the sound. But I'm thinking, if this sound is capable enough to change my perspective, to change my mood, for example, and it happens, sometimes some sounds here and there, they instill in, inside your mind uh, 
sudden rapture, a sense of rapture. You you become contemplative, you become absent-minded. There is a sense of reverie through memory, for example, through associations. So I was thinking about the associative realm of listening that one can unwrap to consider the intersubjective relationship always developing between a listener and his or her environment. And from there, the idea of hyper-listening comes. I was just thinking about how, you know, in, in, in life, as you as I get older anyway, uh, I see people uh, maybe on the street and I feel like I, I know them or they look almost like someone I know. Sometimes I even yes. mistaken that I've seen someone yeah. I know. And th- similarly, there are people who speak, whether again, whether they're speaking with me or it's going on somewhere near me, and they sound almost like someone I've known, someone important to me. And it, it yeah, indeed, it, it, it triggers, it takes me away. Um, and of course, it's impossible to explain in the moment. It's just, you know, what happens. It's it's this association in that case of a, a sound or even a tone of voice, a style of speaking that mm. someone in your life that obviously mattered or, or had quite a memorable impact, uh, it, it comes back. Um, yeah. I, I have that both for faces and for voices quite a lot. And like you say, it becomes hard actually to focus at times to to what's happening in front of me because it uh, it, it takes me somewhere else. Yes. And uh, this somewhere else um, is something I would like to explore because it adds to my well-being. It adds to um, um, make, which is making me sensitive and sensitized to my surrounding. And through this process of sensitization, uh, the right immediate judgments that we do, uh, those judgments are dissolved. So we are not Hmm. creating uh, like everyday judgments, like this sound is coming from that, this sound is coming from that, so I need to navigate them in every day to reach there. This kind of judgmental uh, positions are uh, um, kind of removed when you take a hyper-listening approach, then you are more meditative, you are more open to the world. And when you become this uh, listening body with an open ear, non-judgmental approach, then you can uh, accept others more uh, readily. So this is my argument that in hyper-listening mode, you're more open to the people around you and the objects around you so that you can be more inclusive and tolerant and reciprocal. That's a beautiful thought. And and of great importance in our world where indeed, you know, the the judgments are always there, whoever you are uh, at, at different levels in society, uh, listening to one another, although it would seem we're doing that a lot. It's this question of, are we hearing one another? Um, are we able to really hear what someone is going through not just what exactly what someone says and uh it's it's an interesting thing for all the technology we have for all the tools for listening uh we still have these great disagreements or or these breakdowns in communication in understanding you know why why is that person like that why do they do that actually many times the question isn't even asked i'm i'm thinking of my own neighborhood where sometimes neighbors don't speak with one another because they don't understand each other and they've go- grown tired of trying uh, in some cases but you could have this also in a, in a family uh, and that kind of thing um yeah the ability to to listen um and uh, be open to it that's it seems like something that would be accessible to anyone, but yet so difficult to get consistently in our in our world, in our communities, and our maybe even in our families.
just a little taste, of course, of the Mass in B minor. That's uh, the Netherlands Bach Society, uh, just okay. by coincidence. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's interesting because uh, the Netherlands, not the country that nor you nor I grew up in, but I think we both understand, you probably better than me, uh, that there is a love of especially classical music, uh, but also the arts in general, the importance the arts have. Uh, of course, we can say that about many countries in the world, but I grew up in the United States and I come here and it just seems people have a knowledge and a dedication to, among other things, classical music that I, I did not know growing up, perhaps in a working class community where there was no time for it or there there wasn't the experience with it. Uh, I never knew about this, but of course, in the Netherlands, there is a tradition, and that is somewhere, I don't even know exactly when, might be on Easter day or after, someone knows better, um, you go to hear the, um, the Matthäus Passion. I, 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 don't, I can't even say it in English because I did not grow up with it. I guess it's the St. Matthew Passion. I, I don't know. Uh, but it's mm. something that here, as soon as someone says it, I think Easter, and I know that uh, people especially of certain age, perhaps at a more older age, they go with a sort of automatic dedication. And it's a, it's a, I believe it's a long piece of music. Um, I, I don't know it. If you played it for me, I wouldn't recognize it, but I'm completely fascinated both by what it consists of, but also how people have such a dedication to it. Um, I don't know if you've come across this in, in your conversations and experiences here. Uh, I didn't yet uh, come across uh, with the Easter uh, concert going uh, ritual, but uh, I love St. Matthew's Passion, particularly a few arias, not all the recitatives, but a few of the arias. One aria, if you remember, was used uh, in Sacrifice by Tarkovsky, Andrei hmm. Tarkovsky's one long sequence. Oh. Okay. Uh, and that's one of the most memorable ethereal experience I had in 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 cinema, uh, in my cinema viewing. Yeah. Um, so that particular aria from uh, Saint Matthew's Passion, and another from Saint John's Passion by Bach, uh, the end of meter by Tarkovsky. You remember the mother, the older mother, and the woman. And the kids, they're walking on the field and the film is ending. Hmm. The film is ending also with the soundtrack, that St. John's Passion's first movement. That's also uh, like one of the most memorable experience of, of film ending for me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, of course, uh, and still essential no matter how film changes and, and technology, of course, with making films changes. But of course, the music that goes with the movies that we appreciate, that we see, is it, it, those two always go together. I'm, I'm a person who I'll wake up and I'm making my breakfast and I think, oh, I want to hear the soundtrack from the movie Arrival. Why? There's something about when I watch this film and the sounds involved, the the, the choices of music, um, that I don't need the film to to enjoy. I can simply listen to the music and enjoy it separately. For you, um, you you've just named Tarkovsky. Uh, who are some of your? I mean, give me your top three <laughs> sound uh, music choices, combinations of film and and sound or music. Um, uh, ideologically, <laughs> I, um, I'm against using music uh, in film. Film music, I find, is a kind of compromise. Hmm. But at the same time, I also see how um, creatively uh, authors, they work with music in film using like a refrain or using like an ambience. Um, also, sometimes their association, or the religiosity or the uh, uplifting uh, moment of a musical piece may add to the filmic narrative. So both ways, sometimes I feel uh, music is too much, but, or mm -hmm. maybe music is not needed. The environmental incidental sound uh, is enough 
in, yes. in, in a particular sequence. But sometimes, like Tarkovsky uses music, but Bresson doesn't. If, hmm. if you watch Bresson, for example, Robert Bresson's work, there there is little place for music, except maybe in the title card, when the film is ending in the title credit is moving, maybe minimally he uses music. Antinini almost no music. Hmm. Bergman, I mean, like refrains, he uses music in a very, very poetic way. Like Sarabande by Bach was used in a extremely difficult, complex moment uh, in uh, Cries and Whispers. And that does touched me uh, so deeply, I remember th- that moment. So in a very rare moment, you can use music, but if you use music all the time, it loses the, the point. Yeah. So I think some of the authors, film authors, like Tarkovsky, Bergman, they are so, they are masters in using music in a very uh, limited, minimal way. And, and th- that, that you can remember all through your life, the way they use music. Yeah. I, I grew up with people who, and myself included, you know, we, we loved uh, Tarantino. I guess we still do in different ways. And, and here was someone who it was very obvious sometimes started with a song or, or was very, um, you know, maybe overdoing it, but the songs were such essential parts. I'm thinking of Reservoir Dogs, especially, um, in fact, the songs are more memorable to me than actually the movie. Um, and you know, it's, it's a specific personal style that he has, uh, a love of music from a certain era, clearly, you know, seventies, especially 60s, seventies. Um, but I, I get what you're saying, of course, that, that there are films that maybe overdo it. Um, you know, I, I was thinking we, we loved films like Goodfellas. I know it's a, it's a mobster genre in a way. Um, but loved it uh, to the point that we know my friends and I, we know every line and that there was a film where music, be it crooners, uh, of the sort of Italian American, uh, background or rock, uh, to sort of, I guess, support the somewhat violent nature of that film. It, it was part of the formula and it worked for that time, at least for us. But now all these years, uh, later when Scorsese comes out with a film often seems to be trying to repeat what he did back then, um, and the music is still a huge part of it. You can tell there's a lot of songs and it seems like, you know, they're trying to make them, uh, the same way they were during Goodfellas to make them memorable, but it just doesn't work for me. And it's, it's interesting how the same practice 20 years later, the choices of music, the, the reliance in a way on a lively song or a relaxed song, um, doesn't hit an audience the same way. Yeah. Two, two of the film uh, authors I would mention here for their use of music in a very minimal uh, fashion. One is Belatar. Mm. You might know Belatar's yes. work. Like Satan Tango is one very well-known. Mm-hmm. It's a masterpiece, 1994. And uh, Alexander Sokurov. Oh, I don't know him. Okay. Both of them, they use music in such a way as if they are uh, layers of the sound design, they are uh, ambiences, they are like mixed with. So usually when you use music, all other layers like ambience effects, they go down. The music is in, in the foreground. And these two authors, like few others, like Tarkovsky, Sokurov and Bilatar, they use music in the same level as ambience. So very low, so it's mixed with incidental sounds and they create an atmospheric moment within which you are, um, you are engaging with. So that, that moment is very, very uh, evocative. We, we, we live in this, um, no matter where you are in the world, and you know, I, I do through my work conversations with people everywhere and anywhere. And, you know, there are places, of course, where sound from outside uh, is a constant, Um, even though you're in your home, um, perhaps the windows are closed. But whatever is happening outside is very present in your life. Uh, I remember working in Cairo, 
And I don't know if I've, that may have been one of the most shocking experiences of my life because especially the nighttime, uh, I had never experienced constant honking of horns from cars mm. and, and scooters and uh, all night. I always thought, well, there will be a time where they stop, obviously, uh, in the evening. But no, it, it goes on where I was. And I know in, in many cities in this world, that's the reality. And here we are in Corona times, uh, where a lot of daily commuting, a lot of activity, economic, social, has halted or at least come to a crawl. And there are places that are hearing or <laughs> having sounds that they haven't had in a long time. And that could be silence. Uh, I can hear my neighbor's cat sometimes. I never used to hear that cat. Um, I hear a lot more uh, small sounds, uh, daily yes. life of people, uh, whereas I used to hear the engines of, of machines and, and there is still some renovation. There's nothing Dutch people love more than to sand or saw a piece of wood. Um, mm. And, it, it, you know, it's interesting to talk about focusing, for example, at home, but also your home, but you're, you're very connected to everything happening outside. And although it's become quieter, at the same time, we still have, you know, we live right next to each other, uh, whether you're <laughs> upstairs neighbor, downstairs neighbor, left and right of us. It's, uh, I find it to be quite a challenge, uh, the, the, when to be able to accept or, uh, or not, having no choice, you know, the sound is here. Uh, being okay with it. Um, it. It always depends for me, but at certain moments, I I don't welcome sounds, actually. Um, neighborhood sounds uh, is something I'm very much interested in because it's a community building process that you relate to some sounds, you relate to somebody you know from the other block who is passing by, with a particular kind of footstep, an older woman who is going to the market to fetch something, hard footsteps, and maybe a, a kid who is running around with a particular boot uh, or, or like sneakers, and that has a particular sound. Then the cycle bell or a car horn. So those are the sounds that the community produces. This sense of community through sound is, I think, crucial for connecting with the people surrounding you. If they're not there, it feels ominous. If they're not there, yes. <laughs> but on the other yeah. hand, there are some that are so invading that you wish they weren't there. I have both, you know, and in some cases I, I welcome them, but in some cases I think, no, I don't, I don't want this, but I can't stop it. Yeah, for example, somebody is drilling. The drilling sound is so um, often it, it, it feels like annoying. But I can also consider drilling sound as a, as a kind of musicality. Uh, the, the, you know, the drone sounds, drone and the low frequency responses. And often when there is a sense of rhythm as well when it's really boring through the wall. So every sound, even though it may appear annoying at a certain moment, it has a sense of presence. And this sense of presence doesn't make... I personally am not annoyed with any sound, even though many people may consider it annoying, like the drilling machine, for example, or a motorcycle who, whose uh, silencer is off. So very loud uh, moving of the engine, may, many people may consider that as, as something annoying. But for me, as a sound practitioner, uh, there is no such thing as noise. Everything is sound. Everything is creating an, an ecology. And that ecology uh, is helping to make everything uh, uh, balanced. Even though our this sense of ecology has been evolving to uh, like the general level signal to noise ratio has gone up so the general level of noise content has uh, increased but even then it's human and it's nature and they are not you know estranged from each other humans are part of the nature and whatever is produced is produced 
from a sense of ecology. Sometimes loud, sometimes quiet, but there is a, an ecology that is uh, always uh, weaving all the sounds together with a holistic uh, perspective. I had this memory of, um, if you recall, the, the movie Dancer in the Dark, uh, mm-hmm. Bjork's film. There, there's a part where she's just hearing the sounds of the factory or the place of work, actually. I think she was sewing. And it's the sounds of sewing machines and people just doing repetitive uh, activities. But yeah, I, I had this moment uh, thinking of community and the sounds that we hear. I, I have single uh, pane glass in my bedroom. Uh, okay. so, and, and unfortunately, the way over years uh, buildings were designed at different times, my neighbor, who is across from this courtyard, um, most people have bedrooms to the back of the building, um, they have a backyard almost outside of my first floor window. So if they go out in their small yard, very small, it um, I hear everything. And there was a family living there, a family of four, and the kids were very young, and I could tell whenever the parents wanted some uh, a moment, they would send their two toddlers to the back with a few toys. And so I would hear, as I was waking up every morning, sometimes they appeared in my dreams, uh, children playing or fighting, uh, or f- sometimes I couldn't tell the difference. But also, I often heard a door suddenly open and an argument break out between the adults who seemed to be going through something. And I heard very disturbing sometimes uh, details of, of the frustration that these two people had with each other. And this went on for maybe months, every now and then, once a week, something like this. I could often sleep through it, actually, and sometimes I couldn't. And one day I thought, um, maybe they don't know. Um, and, and in a way, like I have to say something because it's becoming hard to, to sleep or to pretend. So I wrote a letter, um, they had never met me and I wrote, um, first, you know, I'm your neighbor. Uh, second, I hope your kids are well. I hear them and I, I kind of hear them growing up over the last year or years. Um, I wish you all the best, obviously with the kids, but I wanted you to know, I also hear your arguments and sometimes it's very personal private maybe you don't want people hearing it but unfortunately you know single glass <laughs> um <laughs> and, and if, you know in the end i wrote something very typical of neighbors i said if you could please don't have these arguments in the yard uh maybe just in general because now all your neighbors know your business they stopped um but it was one of these cases where i was trying to tell them like i hope they things get better <laughs> i know they're going yeah. through a hard time but i'm not gonna you know, focus on that. It's okay. You know, you can trust me, but at the same time, um, maybe you didn't know. And so it was like informing someone that did it. I'd been listening even involuntarily. <laughs> yes. I just remembered one sequence from, um, rear window. Oh, Hitchcock. Uh, yes. And this guy is sitting there all day and listening to all the sounds surrounding him. The fights, the from the cats, the dogs, the phone, phone calls, conversations, everything. That's something you'll yes. never have to worry about. No. You can see Miss my apartment heart. from here all the way Sorry, up on yes. Street. Yeah. Yeah. No, not exactly, but we have a little apartment here that's probably about as popular as yours. You remember, of course, Miss Torso, the ballet dancer? She's like a queen bee with her pick of the drones. Yeah, that's also interesting, by the way. So in that film, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, because his leg is broken and he has time and he's a curious party, I believe he's a photographer or a journalist, he has a story for everyone. And 
I must say in my life, I also have that for all my neighbors uh, who over time, I, I know many of them so I can get the full picture, but there are those I don't speak with and I, I have, yeah, they're Miss so-and-so, a Mr. So-and-so in my, in my head from my window. Um, yes, I watched that film and I think, hey, they made a film about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as you go forward, um, what are you most interested in, whether it's something you've been working on? I mean, we're talking about hyper-listening earlier, but is there something that has caught your attention, especially in the last year where many of us have had a bit more uh, time uh, on our hands, sometimes to, to think about stuff we, we never had time to in the old, busy, non-corona life, but Regardless, is there, uh, what, what is getting your focus or, or were you becoming more interested in perhaps that you weren't so much before? I'm, um, focusing on a few, uh, I would say projects. Um, one is a project about how we can listen to ritual sounds in the contemporary aut automation society. Uh, a society which is getting more automated and the ritual sounds, which are pre-modern, like temple bells. So I'm working on an installation where I'm using uh, artificial intelligence to create an environment within which we can listen to ritual sounds, automated, alive, and autonomous. So this is one project I'm working on. Then I'm working on another book uh, I think uh, the pandemic from March onwards was immensely productive for me in the sense that I could completely uh, focus on writing. So from March 2020 to March 2021, I produced two books. I finished, I mean, it was in the process, but I had the time to finish the writing. And one of the books, as you, as you already know, I presented that is coming uh, to be published on 1st April. So uh, I'm, uh, apart from the book that I'm working on, I'm also working on another um, experiment, which is also using AI to, because I'm working with AI for the last few years as one of the uh, tools or strategies to incorporate uh, in listening process, uh, particularly the automated uh, alive generative systems of listening. So and this project is about how one can revive the historical figures such as um, Mahatma Gandhi, um, Charlie Chaplin, or Nelson Mandela using AI. <laughs> so this is a project I'm working on and at the moment very intensely, like voice synthesis, historical voice uh, synthesis, and um, using a neural network to recreate their persona. This is the third project uh, that um, um, I'll be focusing on for the next two, three, even maybe five years. So it's the the long term work uh, or the the longer term work, as opposed yeah. to the the small projects. Um, it it sounds to use the pun of our program sounds wonderful and interesting, and I very much enjoy uh, your outlook on not just sound but also humans and how they connect or or connect with something or with someone. I'm I'm very, I think that's part of what interests me in your in your work and and also in your thoughts. So thank you really for, for bringing some of this uh, today and for allowing me to ask you all these questions. It was a pleasure to talk to you and to, I know, don't know the unknown listeners who will be listening to the podcast. And I would like to make friends with all the listeners because sound is so social that yes. it connects people um, and then it creates bridges between people. So I think the unspoken, unheard, unknown listener who is listening to the podcast might be uh, my friend one day. 
I love the sound of that. And uh, yes, <laughs> you'll hear from them. My home's in old Virginia Among the lovely hills The memory of my birthplace Lies in my bosom still I did not like my fireside I did not like my home I had a mind for rambling so far away from home Was on one moonlight evening The stars were shining and with an ugly dagger I made the spirit fly To friends I bid adieu To parents I bid farewell I landed in Chicago In the very midst of hell Don't forget this song 